Well, Father, we come before you on this glorious Sunday to offer praise and thanks to you. Father, I thank you that we have a day dedicated to this and that we can have an early start on it as we just reflect on your goodness and your kindness to us. Father, you have done so much for us, and I pray that as we uh, think through this text together, as we hear it, that we will all emerge with deep-felt hearts of gratitude to you, for you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was September of 1620 when 102 patient passengers and 30 crew members crowded on board a ship called the Mayflower, which was approximately the size of a city bus. Now, the reason why they were there was they were planning on going to the New World where they could practice a religion in conformity to their Christian conscience. Now, before they went, they waited in port for about six weeks because they're trying to shore up their companionship, the Speedwell. And when it became clear that it was not seaworthy, they went ahead and started without that other ship, exhausting six weeks of supplies in the process. Over the course of 96 days, they crossed the Atlantic. The first half of the journey was great, but the second was a tumultuous adventure. Just one man even got swept overboard, but by God's providence, he found one of the ropes dragging through the water and was able to be brought back aboard. And on November 9th, 1620, they spotted land off the coast of Cape Cod. Now, because it got a late start, they were not quite prepared to form an adequate settlement. The New England winter was way harsher than they expected. They did not know that the snow made the ground practically impassable. They didn't know that the cold made the ground so frigid that they could not plant seed. And as a result, already low from supplies, and in their haste they forgot to bring fishing supplies, uh, many of them were malnourished. But it wasn't the malnourishment that, that did many of them in. It was the exposure to the harsh conditions of the New England winter. By the time that first Thanksgiving came, over half the crew and over half the pilgrims died, including 14 of the, 16, 14 of the 18 wives. 14 of the 18 wives died leaving widowers and orphans. They endured a frowning providence, but God in his kindness gave him a special gift by the name of a man named Squanto. You guys know the story of Squanto? He, as a young boy, he was kidnapped by uh, some English sailors and through a series of providential events, ended up in England where he learned English and then he actually crossed back over to his old home. And so when they found these strange group of pilgrims, the, the local chieftain summoned Squanto to communicate with them and, and Squanto taught them how to survive in the New England world, how to, who, how to plant corn and, and ensured proper and peaceful tribal relations with the neighboring Indian tribes in that area. And so in November of 1621, William Bradford organized a feast to celebrate 
a successful corn harvest. And thus we have the first Thanksgiving, although there was no turkey, by the way. I think it was geese and lobster and eel. Exotic, no? But this really, it it was a, a celebration in the midst of sorrow where they chose to give thanksgiving in the midst of what some would see as a difficult, terrible, trying time. Now, we've, I would say, emerged from a a very difficult season. A a survey by, uh, done with pastors uh, about COVID and the after effects said, you know, the overwhelming majority of them said that this was the most difficult time that they've ever had in church ministry. This was a time where uh, there has been a unique social tension that has really percolated throughout the country. In fact, I read that two-thirds of vaccinated families have disinvited their unvaccinated family members from the holidays. Right? Talk about tension. You see a cynicism towards leadership and towards institutions. And then there's just the, the difficulty of COVID itself. I mean, those of you who have gotten it, some of you may have not quite gotten over it. You might be suffering from long COVID. We have lost some friends and, and family Life as we know it has changed quite a bit. And then there's just the everyday uh, stress of living under uh, the curse with the reality of other diseases and people dying of other things. And so we may not suffer to the degree of the pilgrims, not even close. But in following after the Lord, uh, we are confronted with a fallen world that, that seems to uh, give us a lot of reasons to want to curse God and die. And yet, today, we are gathering together to give thanks. And so, how can you do that in the midst of a very difficult season of life? And, and to do this, we're going to turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is entitled, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. That is the title in the Hebrew. It's the only psalm that has that title, that has as an express purpose to help you give thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His and we are the people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. This is a psalm that is dedicated to giving thanks to the Lord. Now, most people believe, most scholars who study this, believe that this was actually written after the Babylonian exile. If you know your biblical history, the Babylonian exile was a low point for Israel. It's when they were abducted, taken captive by a foreign country. And as a result, even when they returned, they were no longer in control of their own destiny. Right? As Americans, we don't know what it's like to be a conquered people, but they did in Israel. You're going to build the temple without permission from a pagan 
emperor. You could not build the walls to protect the temple without permission from a pagan emperor. And long gone are the days of Solomon and David where Israel enjoyed past glory. They're just a backwater outpost in a pagan empire. That's all they are. They do not control their own destiny. And yet here they are collectively gathering together, praising God and giving thanks. And you think, how could they do that? What do they have to be thankful for? Well, the answer is, they are able to thank God for God. Did you hear that? No matter what happens, you can always thank God for God. He is enough to be overwhelmingly thankful for. And as we go through this Thanksgiving psalm, we see a God-centeredness to this. You see that there's a call to proclaim God, to know God, and then to thank God. If you are part of the flock of God, if you are blood-bought and redeemed by the Lord of the universe, this Thanksgiving, no matter what has happened in your life, you can always thank God for God. So we're going to go through this point by point. Proclaim God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now this psalm starts with a summons. It's a summons to all the peoples of the earth. This was likely sung during one of the great feasts of Israel, like, like Passover, the Feast of Weeks. And, and all these pilgrims, not, not Massachusetts pilgrims, right? Pilgrims doing a religious journey in the ancient Near East. They would walk into Jerusalem, and then they would turn around. They'd face Egypt to the west, the ones who formerly enslaved them, and say, you make a joyful noise. They'd face the Persians who have conquered them and say, make a joyful noise. They'd face the Moabites to the south and invite them to make a joyful noise. Now, joyful noise is not tone-deaf singing, okay? Although it is when I sing, but, but it's more than that. It's the sound of effusive celebration. It's the sound that Arrowhead Stadium makes when the Chiefs score a touchdown. And there is something inviting about it. Now, pardon the sports analogy, but I'm in the mood. It is Thanksgiving after all. There's a word that's been associated with Jayhawk football that I have not associated with Jayhawk football for a very long time. It's a four-letter word called hope. <laughs> called hope. And I, I first had it when they played Oklahoma, who was at that time the number three team in the country. And to my shock, they had a lead in the second half. And the radio announcers came on and said, if you are in the Lawrence area, Memorial Stadium is wide open. No tickets required. Come on in, right? Come make a joyful noise. 
right? There was an invitation where they wanted them to come into the stadium to join in the celebration. And that's what's being said here. It's like, everyone is welcome. Come make a joyful noise. It's an invitation to all the nations. Then it's followed by, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. You see, Israel, they were servants of the Lord. They were always chosen for this end. On the slopes of Mount Sinai, before they got the Ten Commandments, after they were rescued from the clutches of the Egyptians, God makes a covenant with them. And he says in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, God's plan was he was going to use this different and distinct nation to reach all the nations. There's always been a built-in heart for the nations, for the outsiders to come in and join in a celebration. And there's an invitation for them to come and serve the Lord. And that word serve, it's used of a slave serving their master, uh, is used of a citizen serving her king, right? It's a call to allegiance. So what this is an invitation to do, it's a call for these pagan idol-worshiping nations to leave their idols behind and come to Jerusalem in service to the king of Israel. You see, idolatry... Uh, was really the way everyone saw the world back then. Everybody had a, had a different God. You had a family God. You had a national God. You had a tribal God. If you were about to plant some seed and you needed some rain, you would sacrifice for, to Baal, the sky God. If you, if you wanted your, your herd to, to multiply, you would uh, sacrifice to Asherah, the fertility God. There, there's always this angle where they're trying to go to all these different gods, and their perception was that these gods were reluctant to hand out favor or blessing. You had to bribe them. You had to cajole them. And so they would serve these gods, but not necessarily with gladness. It's more because they had to. You know, some of these gods were just outright cruel, like Molech, who demanded child sacrifice. It's very difficult to serve him with gladness. But here the Lord is calling on all the nations to serve him with gladness, to reject those gods, to abide by the first commandment. Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke to all, all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You don't need any other gods. You shall have no other gods. You shall worship me alone. And Jesus expands on this logic in Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Right? You can't enjoy a marriage if you're partially committed to somebody else. You can't enjoy a fullness of a relationship with the Lord unless you are exclusively devoted to him. 
And when you decide to leave all those other gods behind, you can serve the Lord with gladness. And, and it's a summons, it's a calling away, right? It's, it's a calling away from so many of these false religions. Like you look at some of the false religions in Africa actually advocate child sacrifice. You have certain sects of Islam that condone mass murder through suicide bombing. You have certain sects of, of, of Christianity that will fleece their sheep. You have the graceless, canceling culture of the far secular left that demands conformity or else, right? You serve them, but out of fear, not out of gladness. But the Lord invites his followers to serve him with gladness because he is good. And to come into his presence with singing. This is an invitation to enter into the holy city, to the temple, right? And the temple, that is the place where God dwelled, right? God is everywhere. God is everywhere. But the temple had a special significance because that was his throne. That's where his manifest presence resided. And they were to come into his presence singing, right? When you can't just say the word, you sing it. Right? It means more. It carries the weight and the emotion, the affection, the feeling. And when you are in his presence, there is singing and there is joy. Now, I was in junior high and my family lived in the Chicago area at the time. And my dad secured tickets to see the Chicago Bulls. When Michael Jordan was on the team, this was when he was ascending into iconic status, right? We knew what he was capable of. We watched him every night when we could. And during the pregame intros, right, they introduced the visiting team and, you know, there'd be boos and howls and all that stuff. And then they would dim the light, drop the smoke machines, right? Those would turn on, they'd do the lasers, and, and then the announcer would begin to start building up, right? The center, the forwards, the guards. And then at the very end, There'd be a long pause, and we would start going nuts in anticipation. That guard from North Carolina. And then there was just this euphoric frenzy that would take place, and they'd say his name, and Michael Jordan didn't even do anything. He just showed up. And that was enough. And, and so when you have this invitation to come into his presence with thanksgiving... The fact that God showed up is enough to celebrate. This is all an invitation. Come, worship our God. There is a desire to, to brag on God. I mean, when somebody's really in love with something, they tend to brag on them. Have you ever been around that young lady who has fallen in love with Brad? All topics of conversation lead to Brad. Beautiful day outside, isn't it? Yeah, it is beautiful. You know uh, who else is beautiful? Brad. <laughs> Boy, that, that turkey smells delicious. It smells great. Yeah. You know who else smells great? <laughs> Brad. This pulpit's strong and sturdy. Yeah, you know who else is strong and sturdy? Let me guess. I'll just say it so I don't have to hear you say it, Brad, right? I mean, you've been around that, and all roads lead to Brad. She's always bragging on Brad. In the same way, when there's a deep heart affection for the Lord, 
all roads lead to him. God is good. It's just very easy to say. It just rolls off your tongue. And, and that is what they're doing here. They're all bragging on God. Why do you think the pilgrims invited the Native Americans to their feast? One was gratitude for them, but also so that they could brag on God. This is an invitation to come into his presence, to proclaim God and to know God. As these Israelite pilgrims enter the holy city, they go from turning to the nations to turning to each other. They say in verse 3, to each other, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. They tell each other, know that the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the specific first name, right? The high name, the one true God. Know that the Lord is not a God, but God. This borrows from one of the great confessions of Israel, the Shema, that says in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is not one God from among many. He is the God. Again, this is a disavowal of all paganism. This is something that the worshipers of God all have in common. They reinforce with each other. You need to know that He is God. This is to reinforce what I call convictional knowledge. You need to be convinced, right? A conviction is when you are convinced of something. It's one thing to say, yeah, you know, if there is a God, it's probably Yahweh. Yeah, I agree with that. Versus, he really is God and I will act like it. Right? It's one thing to say, you know what, I'm, I think there's a heaven and a hell. And, you know, that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and you give your life to him, yeah, yeah, you're probably saved. I, I agree with that. Versus, Heaven and hell are a real place. People will go there. And unless I believe and you believe and follow the risen Lord, there is no hope. That's why newly saved Christians who get it, you don't have to coach them on evangelism. They're already convinced that convictional knowledge of God just leads to that act almost, almost naturally. And so what they are doing is they are calling on each other to know that he is the Lord and to reinforce that they can know him because it is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. They have been crafted and made and assembled by the Lord. They have been called of him. They are now the sheep of his pasture. And when you see the shepherd terminology in Israel, it often speaks of the relationship between the king and his citizens, the shepherd and his flock. He is their Lord. Uh, remember, this was written after the exile when they were a conquered people under a pagan king. And they're reminding each other that it is the Lord who is God, not the God of the Persians, not the God of the Moabites. It is the Lord, and we serve him we are the sheep of his pasture. We're not the sheep of the king of Persia. 
So all this to say, they are to know God in a very real sense. Now, obviously, we're not Israel. We are not the called out tribe, the descendants of Abraham. But we are able to know God in a very real and deep way. The night before Jesus was crucified, he sat down with his disciples to prepare him for life without him. And he tells them in John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the God who delivered Israel. You know God in a very real, rich, personal way. And to know this is to really deep down know this. To be convinced of it. To live it with conviction that Jesus was real, that he really lived the perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he really was resurrected, that he has now ascended to the high place in heaven. We read in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? To know God is to, is to know Jesus and to know that Jesus is in charge, that he is the Lord. He is king of the universe. Everything that happens here on this planet happens because he has allowed it, decreed it. He is the sovereign ruler of all the universe. He is in charge. To so know Jesus, know the most powerful being in the universe. Now, Israel did not tremble at this because he was their God, and we don't need to tremble at this because he is our God. He is the author of the story of the universe. He is writing each chapter. And we know it's going to ultimately have a happy ending for us because we know God. This past week, I watched a, an interview with a, a friend of mine. Uh, he went to seminary with me, was an intern at church with me, was in my wedding, was my roommate. And he deconstructed his faith. He no longer believes, describes himself as an agnostic who lives like there is no God. And his descent into agnosticism occurred for two reasons. Number one, he lost confidence and trust in the Bible. And secondly, he, he, had, he was not convinced that there is a God who really even cares. And he shared a story about how his wife had some serious medical complications after a C-section that left her in the hospital for about two months. And some old ladies came to his church and 
and said, we're praying for your wife. And he got internally angry. It's like, God's not going to heal them. Science will heal them. And so he decided that I don't want to believe anymore. You look at the pilgrims, they could have deconstructed their faith, right? I lost my wife. We followed God. We were planning this for 12 years. He led us over here. And for what? So we can just watch us suffer and die because of his name? They could have just taken Job's wife's advice and just cursed God and die. But here's the question. When, when you decide to curse God or when you decide to deny God or go full-on agnostic or deconstruct your faith, does that take away the reality of evil in this world? It doesn't. There's still going to be death. There's still going to be suffering. But what it does take away is any sense that there'll be some hopeful purpose in it all. You basically say there will be no happy ending ever. There'll be no happy ending. And it might feel good for a while, but in the end, you'll be excluded from the final celebration. To disavow God's presiding over this world is to disavow that there's any hope that the world will end well. And the conviction of the Israelites was that it will. Because they know that they know God, they know that God is sovereign, but they also know God's character. They're able to thank God. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So this moves from proclaiming God to the nations, proclaiming know the Lord to each other, to the priests instructing the pilgrims on what to do once they are in Jerusalem. They say, enter his courts with thanksgiving, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him and bless his name. They are to come into the presence of the Lord, thanking God, giving praise to God, expressing gratitude to God. They had a firm belief that God is worth thanking. They were grateful. And for what reason? Verse 5. Give thanks to God. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, thank God for peace and prosperity. Thank God for your family. Why do you thank God? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. For the Lord is good. He seeks the welfare of his people. His steadfast love. He has a covenant love. He never quits on his people. He stands by his people. He is loyal to his people. And his faithfulness, he will never abandon them or forsake them. And it goes to all generations. You see, they were to thank God not for their earthly blessings, but for who he is. And what's interesting is the duration that we see here, right? His faithfulness to all generations. There's obviously a longer story here. There are more chapters of this book to be written. 
See, this was the conviction of the, of the pilgrims, right? When they're in the new world and they're suffering uh, the plight and, and the curse and they're experiencing all these terrible things, they know that there still is a final chapter to be written, that the one who's writing the story is truly in charge. And at the end of it, this one is a good God who is faithful to his people. And if you belong to the Lord, your story will have a happy ending. See, ultimately, Thanksgiving is an acknowledgement of that fact. It's, a, it's what I call a, a happy surrender. It's a happy surrender. It's when you decide that you will trust the person who is in charge. Now, Christmas is right around the corner. Day after Thanksgiving, it's okay to play Christmas music. You will hear Last Christmas at Walmart and sing it to yourself. But you're 12 years old. You're a 12-year-old boy. And this year for Christmas, what do you want more than anything? We'll just say a Nintendo Switch. Okay? Little boys are going, that's so two years ago, Pastor Dave. Well, that's when I shopped for that, okay? And so you see a box underneath the Christmas tree that has the exact specs of a box which could, would contain a Nintendo Switch, right? You went on Amazon and you looked. Oh, 12 and three quarters high. This is very promising. And it's from your grandparents who you know really love you and they care about you. And so you're convinced it's a Nintendo Switch and you're actually shopping for Nintendo Switch games online. You know exactly what you're going to get. Well, the big day comes. Your grandparents show up with the whole family and you are about to open this gift and you're just savoring the moment, the suspense, and you, you peel it open and what do you see? Twelve scented candles. <laughs> it's a candle of the month collection for their 12-year-old grandson. And at that moment, you feel the eyes of your mother burning on you. Do not disgrace this family, son. And you meekly turn to your grandparents and say, thank you, Grandma and Grandpa. I can't wait till October when I get to light the pumpkin spice candle. <laughs> right? right? You don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But you know what? There might be something to this. Your grandparents may know that if you get the Nintendo Switch, you might become antisocial. But you told yourself, no, no, that would never happen to me. I just, I totally have it under control. Perhaps they know that at 12-year-old, your body's changing and the BO might be a future issue for you. So scented candles would make sense. 12-year-old <laughs> boys are saying, that's not funny, Pastor Dave. <laughs> but they have their reasons, right? All you know is that they, they love you. And so you say thankful, you say thank you on credit. It's a happy surrender. And this world, the spirit of our age is that you can't say thank you. You can't be grateful. It's not allowed. One author writes, in our Freud and Marx-influenced culture, gratitude is the undignified badge of surrender. Dissatisfaction is seen as the way to rally the masses to overthrow corrupt Western power structures and bring in the utopia. Gratitude, much like a Norman Rockwell painting, is perceived as an obstacle for vital social change. And so if you have a bunch of, let's say, poor people who are 
are grateful, they're not going to take it to the man. Or if you have some wealthier middle-class Americans who are thankful, well, they're just too stuck in their white privilege. I mean, you name it, right? You can't be thankful. It's a sign of weakness. Now, this is not to say that we don't try to improve the world and make this world a better place and to love our neighbors by doing so, but there, there is a happy surrender that, yes, we live in a broken world. Yes, there is sin and death. There's a lot to complain about. But we also know that all the wheels of providence are being guided by a good God who loves us, who is going to use this for his ultimate glory and ultimately for our good. We also know that that this God is not unfamiliar with suffering. In fact, his son, Jesus Christ, took on human form and he endured all kinds of suffering fatigue, hunger, pressure. Ultimately, on the cross, he endured shame, humiliation, pain, and abandonment by God. He endured the wrath of God. So that one day, he can return and eradicate all suffering in this world. You can truly change the world. And if you have placed your faith in him, there will be a happy ending for your life. And there's a happy ending right now. Because if you know God, God knows you. And I think about the promise of Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against the elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right, that's the final end. And the thing is, because we know this, we are able to sort through this world and actually see little evidences of God's grace along the way. Just like the pilgrims saw Squanto as evidence of God's grace and God's kindness, they were able to see that there is a happy ending that is guided by a good God who controls all of these things, and along the way they just saw these little things to be thankful for, and that pushed them to the final end when they knew that they would be in the presence of a God who loves them. Ultimately, they thanked God for God. Now, and even though this was a very difficult year for a lot of us, and I even think for this church, there are a lot of things to be thankful for like a new children's wing, right? That is like kind of a big deal. And we didn't even do this aggressive fundraising campaign or anything. You guys just rose up and gave and you sacrificed and Lord blessed us with that. I look at peaceful associate pastor transitions where they were sent to ministries that needed them and they left in a way that was dignified and gracious and we're all better off for it. I, I think about the 18 baptisms that we had this past year, I, I think about how our young people stepped up and served when needed. 
And then our older saints stepped up and filled in the gaps when we needed them. And you know what? Some people left, but some people came. But by and large, the Lord was faithful to maintain the unity of this flock where we still love each other and we still want to enjoy our Thanksgiving together. So all that to say, all of those little graces, right? Those things to be thankful for point us to the ultimate thing to be thankful for, the ultimate person to be thankful for. No matter what happens in in our life, we know that it's going to have a happy ending. And it's going to have a happy ending because we know God. God knows us. And in the very end of the day, we can always be thankful in Thanksgiving because we can always thank God for God. So I'm going to pray. Then we're going to have the worship team come up. And then I'm going to come up here again. And we're going to thank God together by praying for this magnificent feast as a gift from him. And my encouragement to you is maybe take some time with some people you're sitting by and just think in the last year, what are some ways that God has been really faithful to me, to our family, to our church? And just take advantage of the season to openly thank God as we enjoy this feast before us. And let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for you. The privilege of knowing you is the greatest privilege in all our lives. And I pray that our hearts will just sing with gratitude that we will just enjoy this time together. That as we sing this final song, we'll sing to you, knowing that you are good and you are faithful, that you alone are God. Lord, help us in the midst of what might be a difficult holiday season to still be thankful that you are God and that we know you. In Christ's name, amen.